Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Will S. Hilton, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Wright Thompson, Mac McClellan, Justin Heckert, Sarah Weinman, Michael Graff, Leah Satilli, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Latria Graham. Graham is a writer, editor, and cultural critic currently living in South Carolina. Her writing revolves around the dynamics of race, gender norms, class, nerd culture, even football. Back in 2016, she wrote one of the last pieces for SB Nation Longform. That piece was headlined The Dark Knight Unmasked and was about the Carolina Panthers' Josh Norman. Graham also wrote some incredibly important and strong pieces about race for the establishment, which is no longer publishing. Fortunately, they've kept their stories online. One of those was an essay written by Graham titled, Why, as a Black Woman, I Finally Decided to Take to the Streets. Graham's first published piece ran on Ebony's website. That was in May of 2013 and was about her struggles with bulimia. Until that piece ran, she had never really considered life as a writer. I wrote that essay and that was like the first published piece um, that I had out there and it's still up. Um, but yeah, and I, like, I realized I could make money for my brain and stories and I didn't have to try to figure out a real, how to have a, a real nine to five sit in an office job. Graham writes a mixture of essays and journalism and is able to toggle back and forth between the forms. It, it really depends on where I am in my brain space, for example. So um, my mom's been really sick for the last, like, 10 months. She had a back surgery um, that did not go well, and she had to relearn how to walk. I have not written a single essay during this time because my life feels too close to me for me to examine it well. Grammar's written for ESPNW, Outside Magazine, Bicycling Magazine, The Guardian, Our State Magazine, Garden and Gun, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and many other publications. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Graham's work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Latria. 
Thank you. Um, I've been an avid listener for about the past year and have some favorite episodes, so I'm really excited to um, to talk with you for a little bit. Oh, that's some awesome. Some of my like, friends, just friends and, and sort of uh, role models, people I would love to be like have been on Gangry the Podcast, so I was really excited to get your email. Well, I know Kim Cross, uh, who's a, ma- a mutual acquaintance uh, and who was a guest on episode 38 um, way, way back in, way back when. Um, uh, sent me an email and actually said that, that I should read some of your stuff. And, and actually I, I had read some of your stuff before, especially some of the SB, the SB nation piece, um, uh, on the, on the, on the Panthers. Um, because I was also working on an SB nation piece when that one ran. Um, and so I had read your stuff before and and it was, and I love it when, and when other writers are, 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 telling me who I need to have on the show. So I'm glad we were able to, able to, to hook up and, and have this conversation. Yeah, same. Um, I'm a little nervous because I feel like I'm not, I don't want to say not as accomplished, but I, just the conversations about craft, I'm i am excited, but I'm also like terrified of saying the wrong thing, but like <laughs> it's just all of your like interviews go flawlessly, so. <laughs> I don't um, think there's ever yeah, a wrong, yeah, I don't think so. there's ever a wrong thing to, that you can say when we're talking reporting and writing, because I think everybody comes at it. Um, their own way. You know what I mean? I think everyone, right. everyone gets there. Um, uh, it, it, you know, we, we have some commonalities, but in a lot of ways we all got to get there, uh, the way we get there. So, um, right. don't feel like you can say anything wrong. I don't think you can. So thank you. I was looking at your website and, and I'm, I'm impressed by the, 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 the variety of types of things that you write about. Not only the, the variety of, of, um, topics that you write about, but also the the styles and the and the even the genre uh, of writing um, that you have uh, sh- you know shown off on your website. Um, can you can you talk about yourself as a writer and how how you've gotten to where you are right now? Uh, yeah, and I'll try to like not make this too long because it it goes back really to high school um, and realizing that I. I loved language. I loved words. I would read a book a day uh, from the time that I, I could read. And I kind of kept up with that through middle school um, and, and sort of going through. But all of the writers that I was reading and being taught in class and where you would learn sort of more about their biography, for the most part, they were these, you know, dead white dudes from the 1800s and early, you know, the 1900s. And they died in a gutter under sketchy circumstances like a girl Poe. Um, and so I did not see that as a uh, lifestyle or a career path, I guess would be the best way to say it. Um, one, because the news, it was not happening in real time in some ways. And so I did not understand that there was someone whose job was to sit down and report things every day and put it out. My family... Um, sort of being from this working class background, my family watched the news on television. We were not the type of family that got a newspaper delivered to our doorstep every day. Um, my mom was into, she she went to FIT for fashion design, so she would pick up, she has a massive collection of Vogue, but I never understood how they got written because she was always into it for the fashion um, and that section of it and not necessarily for the craft. So I did not grow up reading these great magazine writers I, until I went to the governor's school for the Arts and Humanities. My senior year was the first time I'd ever read or can remember reading um, a living author, and that was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. So um, I didn't see it as a career path. I went off, went to Dartmouth, um, studied to be a biomedical engineer. 
um, because biomedical engineers make money um, and writers don't, but really had this sort of uh, almost a, a nervous breakdown. I, I struggled with the math. It was very difficult, and it was not truly what I wanted to do. Um, and I realized I really wanted to be an English major and theater minor, but was scared of it. Um, so I did that, and I did what we call national and oral traditions, which means I sort of married a lot of um, slavery, slave oral traditions with like medieval literature and these other oral histories and sort of analyzed them and did my thesis on that. I discovered Zora Neale Hurston and some of these other writers um, that were... Um, anthropological. I started discovering living writers. I spent some time with Lucille Clifton when she came up to Dartmouth, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this um, whole writing thing and graduate in uh, fall of 2008. September 1st, 2008, I moved into a New York City apartment because back then that seemed pre-internet um, or pre-sort of major internet boom where all the writers went, right? Like you go to New York City, you work for a magazine, and, and that's just kind of how you go. I move in that day, and the bottom falls out of the mm. economy, and it's the start of the recession. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I like, you know, wasn't sure. We didn't know that it was a recession. We didn't realize, like, how big it would be, and that would not really become apparent, I think, till maybe December or January, but I have this apartment, I need a job, and I sent out about 100 applications, and I get this job um, with the New York Society Library, which is the oldest library in New York, as a library page working for minimum wage. And that was the first time I saw I, I would work and like Tom Wolfe would come in there, Caroline Kennedy, a lot of like actual major New York writers would come upstairs and use the writing room space to do their work. Um, and I really got to engage with people that like wrote books for a living, that wrote magazine um, articles. Christopher Gray, who did a lot of architecture for the New York Times, um, would come in. And, and I realized that like it um, was sort of a viable area because a lot of magazines and stuff were closing at that point. Um, I spent a lot of time doing research and that's where I got a lot of my archival chops um, and eventually ended up going to graduate school for my MFA in creative nonfiction. And so under Susan Cheever and Philip Lopate, you know, sort of the father of the essay, which is why um, some of my first pieces are, are op-eds and essays, not in his style, which is um, interesting. And I, in some ways I'd love to know what he thought of what I do now because we really butted heads when I was in graduate school, but my um, second year, my dad got cancer, and I had to try to figure out a way to um, stay in school and finish this degree, but also start earning money, because what I would do was for, like, the first three or four days of the week, I would be in New York City, and I would go to, go to school, and I would take the train down to Spartanburg and pick him up and take him to Atlanta for treatment, and then I would reverse it. Um, and I would kind of try to do that every week because my mom had to keep working for the insurance. My brother was already in school. My dad could not take himself. Um, and we, we needed money. And so I started um, writing these essays. I was in a class with a, with Brooke Obie, who's at Shadow and Act now, but she was at Ebony. And she knew that I was writing about being black with an eating disorder and struggling with my mental health. And she was like, we really need something like this for the site. Will you write this essay? And I, I wrote that essay. And that was like the first published piece. Um, that I had out there and it's still up. Um, but yeah, and I like, I realized I could make money for my brain and stories and I didn't have to try to figure out a real, how to have a, a 
real nine to five, sit in an office job in New York where I knew I was going to have to take the, the latter half of my week. So it was really out of necessity. I was running out of options. And so I tried to make some for myself. Um, and then it just kind of kept going. My dad died, um, unfortunately, in September 2013. Um, and I really struggled for a while to figure out who I was going to be, what I was going to do. I struggled with, like, grief for a really long time. Um, and then I took some time and was like, what do you really want to do? I want to write. And I kept telling my mom that, but I didn't know how to get started. And so I got started by trying to figure out my dad. And that's where that Josh Norman Carolina Panther piece came mm -hmm. from. Um, was like my dad was a huge football fan, huge football fan. We lived five miles from the Carolina Panthers training center, and my dad never went. And I wanted to figure out, I went in search of my dad. I tried to figure out what he was scared of, what was he intimidated by, why he loved the sport, because like it was one of those things that I always kept up with, because if we couldn't talk about anything else, we could talk about football. If I kept up with the scores or a play or something like that, um, we would have something to talk about that was not farming or how I should have my life together. Um, and so that I went in search of that, and then I found Josh Norman, you know, practicing. And the rest is, is in some ways, history. And it's just I'm still searching for not the perfect job, but the job that allows me to work remotely and be curious about a bunch of different things. That's how I got to this point of, you know, I write so many different things. And I really am like, what am I curious about that I don't understand? Or what's really interesting that I would like to know more about? And I've, I've gone that direction. And that's sort of why I run the gamut. I know that's a very long answer to the question <laughs> that you had. But I think because it, it came in so many different segments and, and how I sort of got my chops. But I, I love my life and never imagined that it could be this. Um, because I I never even knew exactly how newspapers were made. So right. I think that's important to say because everyone seems to come out of this, oh, my parents used to get the New Yorker, and then I have nothing against that, but that is not my background. Right, right. And, you know, you mentioned uh, that you got an MFA. Um, did you finish the MFA? I did finish the MFA, like, just by the, like, skin of my teeth and the grace of God. Um, you know, and Susan Cheever bless her. She got my first draft of my thesis and she was like, just completely start over. And I, yeah, I had to completely write it and I have no idea, you know, how I did it. At this point, my dad was like on a feeding tube and I was having to like feed him, you know, the food and all this other stuff. And I wrote, rewrote my thesis in between like tube feedings and stuff. It was really, I don't remember that time of my life well because I was just trying to like survive it. Um, but I did graduate with, with that in 2013. Sorry, go can, ahead. Yeah, can I ask you a question? Because I'm fascinated um, with people who do journalism who have MFAs, uh, and I'm assuming in, yeah. in nonfiction. Is that correct? Because I also have an MFA in creative nonfiction as well. Um, and I'm fascinated. Like, um, and I'm assuming that a lot of the work you do is probably essay, essay in, in the MFA? Uh, that's what everyone was writing. Uh, and yeah, it, it was mostly that I had a couple of stories. Um, the first story that I ever submitted was, um, more of a creative nonfiction long form piece about this woman that had burnt down, um, her house and they weren't into it. And it just seemed this very like New York and it is the nature of, I think maybe the New York MFA at that time, 
was these very like confessional sex laden close to the skin um, New York stories. Right. Um, and I kind of joke that like I went to I went to the new school because I thought it was edgy and interesting and all that, but I maybe should have gone somewhere that was like less New York because I'm not a New York writer, if that makes sense. But yes, lots and lots and lots of essays. And we never talked about money or how to like sell work or any of that sort of stuff. It was like living for the art and writing your truth, which is, which I have issues with. I will just leave it. Well, no, so now I'm curious though, um, did doing the type of writing that, that is done in MFA programs, of course, I was a newspaper reporter who went and got an MFA uh-huh. and then went back to newspapers. Um, and I found that even though I wrote a memoir in my MFA, because of course that's what everybody who was doing nonfiction was doing. I found that even though I was doing that, that actually made me a better newspaper reporter. Um, uh, and so I'm curious, you know, do you feel like that even after doing that type of writing that maybe wasn't necessarily, um, journalistic in a sense helped make you a better journalist once you started doing that? Yeah, I think so because it allowed me so much more freedom um, you know, kind of coming from, from that background, I didn't know what I could and could not do in a newspaper story since I had never written for newspapers yet. And so engaging in the senses and that whole, they always say show, not tell, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it really made me um, think about space in a very different way. Um and and voice and so I was a, a clarinetist. I went to the Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities as a musician, as a clarinetist. Um, growing up, and the way I think about language, I think about it like music, right? The rhythm, the cadence of a sentence, the rhythm and cadence of someone's voice, how they sound, like what what acoustically is happening um, in a scene in a way. And, and you're allowed to do that more in creative nonfiction. And and some of my writers, my editors say I overwrite when it comes time for like news stuff because I come out of that um, sort of tradition of creative nonfiction where you're able to access and tap mm. into um, so many different parts of yourself that I don't know that you would get in a traditional journalism program. I've not been to one, so I can only assume. But, um, you know, the object- objective and subjective sort of rubbing up against one another is something that I got to do a little bit more of um, in, in the MFA. Right, right. Um, you, you have a lot of essays uh, on 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 your on your website. Um, one that that Kim Cross uh, sent me. I mentioned her earlier. Um, she sent me a piece of yours uh, that um, was was published by the establishment, uh, and I think it was titled "Why as a Black Woman I Finally Decided to Take to the Streets." Um, yeah. I think that was published in August of 2016. Can Can you talk about that piece and how it ultimately came about? Yeah, so that piece, which I I love Kim, and she loves that piece. Um, I that was like just a very that one was born out of frustration um, in a lot of ways. And God bless the establishment; they have they are now defunct. The piece is still up, um, and they're keeping all of their their writing up and keeping sort of that domain open. But um, they've sort of decided to cease production. But they really gave me. Um, a voice in some ways that I, I didn't have, but this was right after um, the shooting that happened in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, and like people were finally, we'd had Mike Brown, we'd had Trayvon Martin, people in, in the South were getting really, really agitated because it seemed like this is pre Alton Sterling, but um, it just seemed like this, this rash of, of black people 
people being killed by the police was happening. And um, for those, I'm blanking on the name of it in the piece. The gentleman had a traumatic brain injury and the, the wife was yelling, one, it's all recorded. The wife was yelling um, to the police, he has a brain injury, he can't understand you. Um, and they killed him anyway. Right. And she she has this, this video, you know, where she's holding her phone, shaking and you're seeing him sort of die. Right. Um, from from this other side. Um, and people. Charlotte was too close. Charlotte is about uh, depending on where you're going in Charlotte, between 75 and 90 miles from my house. Um, so it is the nearest major city. Um, and this is Walter Scott, I think, had, had just been shot in the back and everything that was happening there. You had. Um, the Charleston shooting happened or right at the same time. So the South is hot um, in a way. And I found out through Instagram that there was going to be this rally in this March. And my family, um, being from the Deep South and um, fearing, I guess, repercussions, uh, my family had never been to a march, right? Like that was not... Um, something you did. My family was not the type to go and sit at the lunch, the lunch counter sit-ins and stuff like that. My mom was too young. Um, my dad did not because of, of being in rural settings and sort of white terrorism that could and would happen to people. And so that piece was just like, what it, what happens when I decide to put my body on the line? Um, you know, what what is at risk? I started dating my boyfriend and, you know, we wanted to get married and have a family. And I felt like I was in some ways marching for not just my future, but for the future of, of my family, uh, my, you know, hopeful, hopeful family and all that. And I just, I took my boyfriend's camera and I just wanted to see what happened. And I went sort of in that, that line where you're, both like a person in this march, but you're also observing what's happening. I ended up taking about 2,000 pictures. I was not a trained photographer um, at that point, and so I had no idea really what I was what I was doing. But I knew I needed to be out there. And my mom went because she was too young during the civil rights movement um, to go and march, and so she got out there um, too, and sort of to see her experience, my experience, and, and be able to talk about it, because my family did not talk about white terrorism. They did not talk about, you, we talked about discrimination, but we did not talk about the, um, bigger thing of white supremacy. And so that was really trying to unravel my feelings on it. Um, what I was experiencing because all of that was new and, also, I will just sort of add this side note, Occupy Wall Street happened right outside of the new school. And I remember people like during my MFA, like got up and like walked out and went to sort of go join the movement in the street. And that movement felt outside of me. And so like I, I did not, I cut that part from this piece because it was already too long, but like why I felt the need, I didn't feel the need to take you know, to the streets during Occupy Wall Street, but I did for this. And that has actually been the only time that I have, have taken to the street to express my frustration um, in this way. Yeah, you had some, so that was sort of where it came from. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, you had some really amazing details uh, about the march itself. Did did those come from the photos you took? They come from the photos I took. I took notes while I was there. I literally did everything. I may have even done some recordings, both video recording and sound recordings. I'm one of those people that like I have backup to my backup. Um, <laughs> That's in some smart. Ways, yeah, 
Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I've had one sort of major piece that I'm glad I had the backup for, but it's just when you're black and you're saying you're experiencing something, people are always questioning whether what you're experiencing is real. And so I, I had to, I felt like I had to have it. But yes, some of it was just little details or snippets that I wrote down and, and all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, it, it comes from from being in the thick of it. Mm. You you had another essay uh, that ran on ESPNW uh, shortly after the, that establishment piece, but it was about something entirely different, and it was about running. Um, yeah. How Harry Potter virtual running groups helped me conquer my depression. Um, and I, I love that piece because I'm also a runner. Uh, and, yes, yes, and I'm familiar I, with your memoir. And I would love it if, if you could talk a little bit about that piece um, and how it came about. Yeah, so I w- I'm really lucky, and I have a great um, relationship with ESPNW, um, and I was working with the editor, Janisha Watts, um, at that time, um, and I think it may have been around the anniversary of Harry Potter. So I belong to, at that point, it was Hogwarts Running Club, but they've changed the name because of some of the Warner Brothers uh Kerfluffle that's happening, and it's called Potterhead Running Club, and I'm still active in it, and they do uh, medals and all that, but yeah, like, at it is still, I think, in the African-American community and maybe other communities of color, really hard to talk about mental health, right? Mm-hmm. But we're able to talk about exercise. Um, but that piece came about because I, I, they were getting ready to, to do a couple pieces on Harry Potter um, at that point. And I was like, There's, I had this, this tie um, to this club, which has raised, I think, over $8 million dollars. Um, and charitable donations, both through Charity Miles, which is an app where you run and it gives, you know, X um, number of dollars or X number of, of, I think it's about a quarter or something, a mile, right, for however far you go. So we have this thing where it's like, I solemnly swear I'm up to so much good. And so it's really in the age of the Internet where um, strangers sometimes do terrible things or say terrible things to each other. It was the chance to, to be part of something bigger and greater that did not cost a billion dollars like the Walt Disney World half marathons that I love to do, but, um, you know, it's $500 for registration and all of that sort of stuff. It gave me another place and it, it really, um, running, I started running and God bless my best friend, Jill Stevens. Um, I, I had this, I was super suicidal for my birthday. I've always, I've struggled with depression at least since I was about eight or nine years old. We didn't have the words for it until I went to college, but, um, I, and I had an eating disorder from the age 10 or 11, much up through probably about 22. And so, um, you know, she calls me for my birthday, which I hate my birthday. Nobody knows when it is <laughs> other than basically my family and people that I grew up with. And I just start crying. And I was like, I just don't want to be here anymore. And she's like, I need you to make a list of all the things that you want to do to give you a reason to live. And running was on that list. Right. And so we, we trained for our first 5K and all that. And it just it, it allows me to get outside of myself. It gives me a challenge. Right. It gives me a bodily challenge that takes me out of my my brain. And I was just telling them about that. And one of like I had gone to the ESPN offices, I think, at that point and was just talking about sort of my my body and, um, you know, sort of the things you're up against. And there's nothing like running for a shiny metal and knowing that like things will will get better. But it, it's just that routine. And it's like, OK, we can run away from the dementors for for another day. Um, and I was just really lucky that they took that piece. It's a little silly. It's, well, it's not really silly, but it's quirky, I guess, for the type of, of writing um, that I do. But I still run that same path whenever I'm at home 
Um, and Harry Potter came out. It was a story about a 10-year-old boy um, trying to find himself. When, and it came out when I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with Harry Potter um, in a way that maybe uh, previous or subsequent generations didn't really um, and have had some, some ties to it. And it has really gotten me out of some ruts because you can go into the group and, you know, talk about stuff that you're going through or, or running questions you have or whatever. Um, and they're very supportive. Sometimes we have meetups at major races and stuff like that. Um, and they're, they were just a great organization. And, and the fact that I got to talk about sort of what it did for me or does for me, um, I was, I was really lucky craft wise. I just put it on, um, on the page, I am one that starts with a um, longhand first draft mm. and edit as I'm typing, if that makes sense. Yeah, and um, yeah. Susan Cheever taught me this. Like, sometimes if I'll have a thought or a subject, I'll put it on the top of a note card and write that section, and I'll move those sections around into ways that make sense. Um, and then usually I have my essay, and then I type it. Yeah, type it up. that's fascinating. Um, I wish yeah. I could do that. If I tried to do that, I wouldn't be able to read my own handwriting when I went to go type it up. So... <laughs> Um, oh my God. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I also love, I meant to say this earlier, but I also love that piece because I love Harry Potter as well. Um, yes. and it was, this, and it's just fan and Harry Potter is such a great, um, just great book series to look at, to learn how to do narrative, um, right. right. Uh, right. And to, to keep the reader engaged and everything. It was just, it's really, it was, and, and also I loved it because there is so much research out there about how running helps mental health and can, right. can completely, um, uh, change so much more than just kind of physical fitness type of thing. So, Right, right. Yeah, because I am not, um, I identify as plus size, and some people would call me fat, and that is fine, too. Like, so I am never going to be the fastest, right, right? when it comes to that. That can never be my goal. But I can always try to be my best self or beat myself, and that is what... uh, running allows me to do because I'm not like my brother is a very fast runner we're talking like six minute miles Mm. right and I am closer to on my good days I'm a 13 minute mile on my bad days I'm like a 15 (laughs) right and so I'm I'm very slow and I call myself the cruise ship I was like I'm big I'm slow but there's probably food in my hydration pack and we have a really good time Um, and I've kind of embraced that part of it and so I find other parts of running and there's nothing against I'm the the name of the book is called like running and being um and just some of those meditative books on on running have really helped me because like I I probably I don't know how much faster I'll get if I'll get faster at all um but you know finding some comfort and still keeping going even if it's slower Mm -hmm. um and sort of embracing that but I haven't written about running for a while and I need to get get back to that because it's got a different a different place in my life now well, you had a couple pieces on amy craig um back in december yes. um and so right. i guess you're not writing about your own running there but you're writing about another runner um right can you can you can you tell me a little bit about those pieces uh, uh especially the longer feature story on amy yeah um so those pieces came out zappos found me i guess because i had done some um other you know longer sports writing and, and all of that. Um, and they, Shalane Flanagan had just won the New York City Marathon. They were like, will you fly out and interview her and her running partner, Amy Craig. And this great relationship, it was amazing just to see it in in action and to get to spend a little bit of time with Amy and her husband. 
Um, so, yeah, so Zappos sort of set those up. I didn't have to go searching for that story. Mm. That may be like the first story that was ever really assigned to me. I had to come up with my angle, right? right? Because like Amy was sort of running into this wall where she wasn't getting any better with the team that she was on um, with on the East Coast. And so she was like, this, this could be the, the end of my career or I could change absolutely everything about what I'm doing and try again. And that's what she did. And she's found great success doing that. So we talked about being that. And again, I think being a runner helped, even though I'm a much slower runner, but right, the wall, that inside outside thing, I, I like to say all the writing that I do is about the body, mm-hmm. right? And right. the internal and external forces that rub up against the skin that sort of create blisters. And so for her, it was really being able to organize her inside um, and, and really be okay with change um, and what that means in moving her bulldog and her husband across the country to try to embrace something new that led to that external success. And so we just we just talk about that and being what it's like being scary, what it's like to change your nutrition, what it's like to change, um, you know, workouts and all of that sort of sort of stuff. And we just really I try to make sure my interviews are conversation. Um, in some ways, and I want to get to know the person really well, like, even if I'm writing a shorter piece, um, like, I don't know, you know, two or 3,000 words, I will spend four to five hours with a person, because at some point, one, that newness and interview, and they're very media savvy, right? And they could have given me the same clip answers today, because they're both Nike athletes, and, you know, they're interviewed all the time, they could have given me all these little clip excerpts, you know, and blurbs they always give people, but I wanted that to, to give it time to fall away and at some point when you get tired it's not that you slip but you become more yourself um and i got the chance you know i spent uh two full days with her uh, and so she she got to become more herself um and and a little bit more relaxed and we just we talk like people i mean this is not um to put anyone down. I mean, we both have, we all have to like, you know, put our pants on one leg at a time, right? Like nobody's this special, like sparkly unicorn. We're all people. And so when I go into an interview, I really try to go in human to human and like, you know, talk about fear and perfection and all of those sorts of things and learning their favorite food and what they like to eat and stuff. It, it seems like it's not related, but you never know where those little threads can go. And so some of that stuff just came out of just like talking to her, like, like she was, um, not really a friend, right? Because you never want to want to like blur that integrity line, but I'm not super formal with like a list of questions. I have like subjects I'm curious about that I try to work into conversation, but like I, I just like now, just what we're doing right now is how I try to approach my now, I was going to ask you, um, and I'm assuming I, I think I know the answer, but like when, when you're when you're spending time with a source, um, I, I'm assuming you talk about your own life uh, as well. Um, yeah, is that when correct it's or? relevant, um, I, I definitely do. Um, you know, again, when we're talking about change or fear or whatever, because like it, it's 
people, and I always tell people when I'm interviewing them, if you have a question about why I'm asking this question or if you want me to, you know, re-articulate the question and all that sort of stuff, because some of it is, is just nerves. Some of it is they want to know exactly why the hell you want into their lives, right? Or why you're asking this specific question. And so I try to be very, very open about that. And I, and I do tell them, I was like, ask me questions too. If you want to know something about me, I will tell you that about my life. Obviously, they're professional interviews, and so it never crosses um, the line, you know what I mean? Like we all kind of understand what the line is. Um, but yeah, like it, it is just very much sitting down in a living room and sometimes I'll take people, you know, a snack or whatever. I love to, to cook and bake. And so depending on how, um, how professional it is, like I didn't take Amy and Shalane anything, but, um, you know, it, it's just like, Hey, like, especially when it's part of my community, um, you know, whether it's Southern or African American or whatever, you know, you don't show up in the empty handed. You thank people for their time. You really do treat them like, like something to cherish. And I really think time is something to cherish. And so anytime you spend time with a person, cause it's your life too, right? We only get so much time. Um, you, I really try to treat that with some grace and integrity. Do you, um, what what do you prefer to write? Do you prefer essays or do you prefer reported um, journalistic pieces? Um, it it really depends on where I am in my brain space, if that makes sense. And I'll, right. I'll give you an example. So um, my mom's been really sick for the last, like, 10 months. She had a back surgery um, that did not go well. She had to relearn how to walk. I have not written a single essay during this time because my life feels too close to me for me to examine it well. Um, I'm doing a lot of pieces on art for like magazines and, and things like that. I'm doing a lot more reported. I'm taking myself out of it right now. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm also doing some of the, the shorter pieces. I have a couple of long form years, years that I'm taking to report something. I'm working on a story about Princeville, North Carolina, and it's in year two. Um, and I, I realize I'm not in the headspace to write that. Um, sometimes when the world is really um, crappy and things feel really urgent, that's generally when the essays come out, when it's like clawing at my throat and I have something to say. I don't necessarily, I've got essay ideas written down right now, but I don't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write this nice, beautiful essay and then go sell it. It usually has to be something that I'm ashamed of or that is rattling around in my body that I can't get rid of. And the world says, okay, you have to write it out. Right. Um, and so like for this piece on, on my mother, and again, it's too close for me. It's called when lightning strikes twice. Right. Like I ended up taking care of my, my dad, um, for about two years. Um, and then I've had this 10 months with my, with my mom, um, and, and trying to sort of balance those, those two things because uh, people were like, your mom's in such great shape. And she was like, she runs the 10 caves and stuff with me. So, so to go from that to like not being able to walk was a, a severe you know, issue for her and for me. Um, so I, I don't prefer one over the other. I think of them both as really great tools. Um, you'll notice that for my reported pieces, I am a journalist that does not I don't insert myself into pieces unless there's absolutely no other way to tell it. And I've never come across, I may have to deal with that with the principal piece, which is part of the reason I think I'm um, so on the fence about it in terms of brain space, because that, that is the one piece I may have to insert myself in um, and I have to be, be ready for it. So it, it really depends on mood. And I'm one of those that like, um, 
I don't pitch until I know that I know that I know because I never want to renege and be like, hey, I can't write this. So, like, the essays are usually done or in outline form or something um, before, before I send them. I really want to have a good grasp on what it is. You told me before we started recording that you were in Colorado. What are you working on up there? So I just finished Outdoor Retailer, the major sort of trade show. I was working for the magazine. Um, sort of, they I'd written the piece for Outside, and um, you know, people interested in my viewpoint on um, you know how how the trade show was doing in terms of diversity and sort of my voice and things that I was interested in. Um, so yeah, I gave them a little taste of of that. Um, and just kind of, I'd always wanted to, to go to this and sort of see why I buy, what I buy, what's working, what's not, um, and all that jazz. So I got really lucky and, and sort of scored an invitation. I worked with, if we go through the whole thing, um, the Our State story that I did, um, about two years ago, I worked with a photographer named Andrew Cornelak, who knows a lot for Grabbing Gun um, and Blue Ridge Outdoors and stuff. Um, and we really enjoyed working together, and he recommended me for a piece on two Egyptian brothers um, who were um, o- opening a bicycle shop. Because there are not many retailers, think about this, like hiking stores, um, bike stores, any of that that are people of color, like a period. We could not think of any, and the closest we could think of was this bicycle shop. Um, and they were really great and wanted a person of color to write it. And so I, I did that. Um, and so they were like, hey, you should come to the, to the show. And I, I was like, I have never been and always wanted to go, and now I have a reason um, to go. So I did that, and I'm, I'm really lucky. And then uh, Tracy Ross, who is another outdoor writer that I admire, greatly, and we've sort of become internet friends, um, and cheer one another on, and, and redraft most of my community is digital, because I freelance. Um, I, she, she lives out here, and so the goal is to, like, get into, she has this little writing studio, get there, to some free writes, come up with some, um, you know, pitches and goals for the second half of the year, and so I will keep her solstice at her house. Um, and and hang out and try to give myself. I, I could not come to this part of the country and not go outside. And who better to go outside with than an experienced mountaineer and all that? Right, right, right. Well, Latria, thank you so much for spending some time and talking with me here on Gangry the podcast. It's it's been fantastic talking with you, and and I look forward to reading uh, everything that you're working on uh, right now as as it comes out. Yes, thank you. And this has been, I love when I get to talk about craft. Um, I don't get to do it often, but it is a joy. And I'm glad that I got to do it with you and that I'm sort of in this catalog of fantastic writers um, that you've had the the chance to interview. So, like, thank you, thank you for reaching out to me. And I look forward to listening to the episodes as they come out. And you definitely have a subscriber. I've been talking with Latria Graham. Graham is a writer, editor, and cultural critic currently living in South Carolina. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Graham's work on the podcast website. You can find that at gangrethepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. 
You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>